Let's return to our study of Matthew chapter 15. Last week, we were faced with the profound grace of the gospel. We learned that Jesus, the Messiah, graciously and powerfully responds to all who put their trust in him. We're going to pick up the story in verse 29, where Matthew is continuing this series of amazing events in Jesus' ministry. So we're in Matthew 15, we're going to pick up rather in verse number 32, not in verse 29. Verse number 32. Let's read these these accounts together. Matthew 15, beginning in verse 32. We're going to read all the way down into chapter 16. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven and a few small fish and directing the crowd to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves and the fish and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied and they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadon and the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him. They asked him, to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Verse number five. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I do not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Matthew is simply continuing a theme that he hasn't left since he began this book. Jesus is the true Messiah, the king who you should believingly submit to. In our passage today, we're going to see this big idea. Believe that Jesus is the Messiah and beware any teaching that says otherwise. Believe that Jesus is the Messiah and beware any teaching that says otherwise. Now, perhaps at this point, you've noticed that a lot of our big ideas have begun to sound a whole lot the same. Uh, Some of them get a lot longer than others and some of them are shorter, but they have all had this theme of Jesus the Messiah. I mean, haven't we already said this before, that the big idea was that Jesus is the Messiah? Only in about four or 15 other sermons that we've heard from Matthew. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. We've said this again and again, but this is clearly still Matthew's point. So therefore, it's clearly still what God wants us to hear again this morning. And he wants us to respond in belief to it. And he wants us to apply it in our everyday life. Now, The thing about repetition is that repetition can often become monotonous. There are some things that I hate to do over and over and over again. 
So for instance, uh, just this past week, I was out in my yard. I'm not a big yard working fan anyway, uh, but I was in my yard and I was raking up all these nasty little pricklies that come, I call them pricklies. I don't know what the technical term is, but those pricklies that come down from, I guess it's like an oak tree or something, and they're all over my yard. And the thing about those nasty little pricklies, um, besides the fact you can, you can roll your ankles on them at any moment, and they shoot out of your lawnmower like little projectiles, but the thing about those nasty little pricklies uh, is that they're in my yard pretty much year-round. I mean, it doesn't spring, summer, fall, these pricklies just keep coming. In fact, I made the mistake. I was just about to get finished raking through the yard, and I looked up at the tree, and it seemed like there were just as many still on the tree as there were on the ground. And I said to myself, you're going to be doing the same thing again. And, and I hate the monotony of, you know, I'm going to have to do the exact, it's the same yard, it's the same raking, and I'm just going to have to do the same job over and over again. Right? We, we don't really like repetition a whole lot. And, and Matthew is doing something again and again. And part of my fear for myself as well as for you uh, is that we'll begin to lose interest in the topic because of its repetition. I mean, Matthew really is like a broken record that Jesus is the king you should believe in. Matthew keeps pressing this point. And the true accounts of Jesus' ministry are building on one another, and they're forming an entire picture of Jesus that leaves us all with only two options. You can either receive Jesus as Messiah, or you can reject him as madman. All right? Matthew's not going to leave us an option, though. He's going to keep pressing the point. And while the repetition might seem boring or maybe simplistic, we really need grace today that, that it would not be. Because we're going to see more accounts today that are another picture of our wonderful Christ. Uh, Knowing him is knowing eternal life. So every account of his words and actions are precious accounts. Our Christianity is a relationship with Christ. So our hearts should leap at another chance to see what he was like. To see how great he is. Our confidence in him is exclusive and total. So another chance to see how believable he is strengthens our faith. God knew exactly what he was doing when he wrote such a repetitive message in the book of Matthew. So let's apply ourselves to receiving it today. The accounts that we've been studying individually, including this morning's, are all woven together to make a point that we need to come back to again and again. Who is this Jesus? I mean, who is he? And what will our knowledge of him demand from us? Today's passage will again present him as Messiah. And so the demand is, first of all, to believe in him. But secondly, we will also be demanded to weigh all other teachers against what is true about Jesus. So Matthew is going to inform us to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and beware all who teach otherwise. And he does it with three scenes. And these will be our three points today. First of all, Jesus powerfully cares for the crowds. Second, Jesus pointedly confronts the religious leaders. And thirdly, Jesus pastorally cautions the disciples. So powerful care pointed confrontation and pastoral caution. So let's consider first Jesus powerfully caring for the crowds. We have here in Matthew chapter number 15, what is possibly the most forgotten miracle in the whole Bible, right? If I asked you to complete this phrase, the feeding of the, you would say, probably you would say 5,000. Probably if we hadn't read this passage and I said the feeding of the, you would not have said the feeding of the 4,000. I mean, the poor 4,000 just get left out. I mean, they're not in the flannel graph stories. Um, maybe we don't even remember the story. Um, some people like to say that, that 
this was just a mistake, and this is actually the feeding of the 5,000, and Matthew was just repeating it accidentally. Uh, This poor miracle just gets shoved under the rug. But we need to work through this account carefully if we want to see our Jesus on display. There's a lot of overlap between the feeding of the 5,000, which actually in Providence, I also preach that passage. But we need to think about this miracle in this context, because really it serves as a launching pad for all of the following interactions with religious leaders and then with his disciples. So we need to get our bearings. Verse number 32, then Jesus called his disciples to him. Remember that Jesus had come back from the regions of Tyre and Sidon. He had come back to the Sea of Galilee. He had uh, done this miracle for this Canaanite woman. And then he proceeded to do miracles for a bunch of other people. No doubt a mixed crowd of Gentile people who followed him down from Tyre and Sidon. I mean, they saw his miraculous power and no doubt they were attracted to him. And so you have this huge crowd and and most likely as a Gentile crowd, which we saw from the end of verse 31, because they glorified the God of Israel. Right. That's not typically something an Israelite would say. So we probably have Gentile people glorifying the God of Israel. And so in this context, as, as all these people are getting their miracles, Jesus calls his disciples to him. And, and this is what he says. I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. It's remarkable in this account um, that we see Jesus' compassion on display again. And what's unique in this account is this is the only time that we hear Jesus saying, I have compassion. All right, all the rest of the times we have other people saying Jesus was compassionate, he is compassionate. Here we have Jesus specifically saying, I have compassion on the crowd. Remember that we studied in in the previous account of the feeding of the 5,000 that that word compassion is an emotional feeling that leads to action. And it's used uniquely in the Gospels for the character of Christ. All right, this compassion is a word that's only used for Christ in the Gospels outside of one parable. So because Christ is compassionate, He considers the situation of the crowd. Notice how thoughtful he is in in these verses. This is amazing to see his compassion on display. He says these people have been with him now three days and have nothing to eat. Um, Maybe that three days was travel time. Some of it was while he was doing miracles. Um, But it says that they've been with me now for this length of time, three days, and they have nothing to eat. All right. That probably doesn't mean that they didn't have anything to eat to start with. Probably means they don't have anything left to eat. They've been with me over this Length of time, three days, and now they're out of food. They've exhausted whatever food they brought with them. And Jesus is aware of the situation, and he caringly refuses to send them away. Notice what he says. They've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. He says, I am unwilling. That's a very strong um, word about Jesus' will, what he is really concerned about. Uh, He is completely against sending this crowd away. And he refuses to do so, and it's because of his compassion. Why does Jesus not want to send this crowd away? Because they've been without food now, and he says, we're in this desolate place, and if I send them away, they might actually faint on the way. He, he, is, he is thinking about the needs of the crowds, and he's concerned for their welfare. And he refuses to do anything that would jeopardize their health. They, I mean, these people came to Jesus for help. And so he's not going to send them away into more misery and distress by sending them away without food. And so... Enter the disciples in verse number 33. He says, I'm unwilling to send them away. And verse 33, we read, and the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Really? Like, like they are really asking this question. Does, does that strike any of the any of the rest of you as a little bit odd? Do you hear the echo? This is the exact same thing they said before the feeding of the 5,000. You can't expect us to feed all these people. Where are we going to get enough bread? 
I mean, this is incredible. The disciples are going to ask this question. How in the world could they be asking this? Well, for starters, this was most likely a predominantly Gentile crowd. And the disciples may assume that Jesus is not going to do a miracle uh, for them, just like he had for the Jews. So they still could be holding on to their, their Gentile prejudice. But more likely, the disciples just really are this dense. All right. If that seems hard for you to believe, then wait until we get to the rest of our account in chapter 16, and, and you'll see that they miss the point over and over and over again. I mean, these disciples, they seem to have the biggest short-term memory loss of any disciples ever, all right? They just cannot get their minds around who it is that they're talking with. The, the miracles that he's doing haven't, haven't sunk in. They haven't seeped in. And so they ask this bizarre question that they've already had an answer to when, they, when he fed the 5,000. Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? So we can't do it. It's desolate, so there's no other place for us to make food. And it's, it's so great a crowd, all right? There's just no way we can pull this off. So Jesus asked them how much bread they have. And they said in verse number 34, seven and a few small fish. So the little fish get thrown back in there again. We've got seven loaves and a few small fish. And so just like in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus takes charge. Look in verse 35, it says, and directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish. That word directing is a word that's used for military commanders giving giving commands to their troops. And so Jesus, Jesus tells everyone, this is what I want you to do. I want you to sit down. And he takes those seven loaves and he takes those little fish. And what happens? Well, he takes them and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. Notice it says he took he broke and he gave. I didn't mention this when we talked about the feeding of the 5,000, but some people like to, like to see both of these feedings as basically precursors to communion. Um, they, they like to say that, that basically the language of taking and breaking and giving, it's exactly the same as what we're going to read when it comes to the Lord's Supper. So they would say the point is that Jesus invited Jews and Gentiles alike to partake in the new covenant meal. It's a, it's a foretaste of the communion that was to come. Right? We've got a couple problems with that perspective, however. Among the problems are that uh, fish is never wine. All right? uh, you've got a major problem. If you're going to go, well, this is just like the Lord's Supper. Okay, bread, yes, you got bread and bread. That makes sense. But fish and wine, uh, let me just tell you about, about how we interpret Scripture. If, if our interpretation of Scripture ever has to make something like fish and, and it has to change into something as different as wine, uh, you probably have an interpretation problem, all right? Um, was this a precursor of the communion meal? No, this is just bread and fish that they had. Jesus is just taking them. He's breaking them. He's distributing them. We don't have to see any kind of special symbolism with him taking and breaking. He's grateful to God. And, and the, um, the amazing thing is not that he uses the language of the Lord's Supper. The amazing thing is that he gives them to the disciples, and the disciples turn around with these seven loaves and these few fish, and what do they do? They give them to the crowd. They give them to the ground. This is, this is unfathomable. This is, this is beyond any human ability to duplicate this kind of thing. Jesus feeds the 4,000 with just these few loaves and fish. And notice again, just like we did with the feeding of the 5,000, it says in verse 37, they all ate and were satisfied. So everybody got some and they were all full. And on top of that, there were leftovers. They took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. This time, there were seven baskets in the feeding of the 5,000. There were 12 left over. But the point is, everyone ate. There's even leftovers. 
And then he says, to make this miracle even more amazing, he tells us the number of people that were there. Just the number of men. Again, this isn't numbering women and children. Verse number 38, those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. So again, we could be talking about 10 to 12,000 people that get fed out of seven loaves and a few dinky little fish. This is, this is compassion mixed with incredible power. This is an astonishing miracle. This is how much power Jesus Christ has. He can take seven little loaves and a few little fish, and he can feed 4,000 men, not counting women and children, and they can all be full, they can be satisfied, and they can even have leftovers. I mean, nobody could do this except the very Son of God. Now, before we continue to marvel at this amazing display of deity, um, I want to stop for another interpretive point. Um, remember how many baskets were left over from the feeding of 5,000? I said there were 12. All right, how many this time? There's seven. Now, do you know what the significance of those two numbers are? I mean, why is there a difference in the numbers of leftovers? What can we learn from this difference? Well, having 12 baskets of leftover immediately make people think about the 12 tribes, which would basically mean symbolically that Jesus provided food for all of the Israelites. There were 12 baskets of leftover. Jesus has enough to provide for all of Israel. But seven in this passage is a lot harder to come up with a meaning for. And, uh, but some people say that seven is the number of completeness or perfection. All right, so you've got a number of completeness or perfection. Now, if you take the four of the 4,000, you can think about the four corners of the world. So you can say, see, Jesus provided for the completeness of the Gentile world, just like he provided for all the 12 tribes of the Jews. All right, now there's a Hebrew word for that kind of interpretation. It's called baloney, all right? That's called baloney. Um, before they get into all the possible significance of these numbers, commentators say that the seven baskets of leftovers have to be just as symbolic as the 12 baskets of leftovers in, in the feeding of the 5,000. And I totally agree. Neither of them are symbolic in any way, all right? They're just as symbolic, which is not at all, all right? Um, well, what, what's the point then? Well, the point is that this is not the miracle of the leftovers, all right? The miracle was not that Jesus figured out exactly how many leftovers that he could make so that he could make some kind of esoteric numerical point, all right? The significance of the seven baskets is that there was ample leftovers. Nobody went hungry. There was more than enough food for everyone. Now, only Jesus has that kind of power, all right? That's the point of the leftovers. Only Jesus has enough power to feed 4,000 men, not counting women and children, with a few loaves and a few fish, and for them to have all that they want and to be satisfied and for there to be even more. Jesus is the Messiah. He is who he said he was. Don't miss the power of Christ on display in this miracle. Believe that he is the Messiah. Who else could do this? In fact, speaking of belief, you'd think that the proof for Jesus being the Messiah was getting to the point where it was almost insurmountable. What happens? Well, in verse 39, Jesus sends the crowd away. So after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadon. Now, we don't actually know where that is, um, but it was definitely in Jewish territory. So Jesus sends the crowds away, fed instead of famished, and he gets into a boat. He goes to the Jewish region. And who do we find waiting for him there when we get to Matthew chapter 16? It's unfortunate that that's where the chapter break is, but remember, the breaks aren't inspired. Uh, this is one continuing story. Um, who, who is waiting for Jesus when he gets to this region of Magadan? Is it, is it crowds of believing Jews? 
that are just so thrilled to have their Messiah back from his stint away with the Gentiles. Is that what happens? Nope, he's just met with stone-cold unbelievers. As soon as Jesus gets back to Jewish territory, the rejectors come out in force. So he gets back to Jewish territory, and immediately the religious leaders come to him. Look in chapter 16, verse number 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and they didn't come saying, you clearly are the Messiah. They came, and they came to test him. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, the Pharisees and Sadducees aren't coming to believe. They aren't coming to listen or learn. They're coming to trick and they're coming to test. And Jesus will again pointedly confront the religious leaders. And this confrontation should again cause us to see that Jesus really is the kingly Messiah. So notice who comes. It's Pharisees and Sadducees. You're already well familiar with the Pharisees. Um, they, They were the people that said they were experts in the law. They were proud of their religiosity They were the self-appointed interpreters as well as enforcers of the law. But the Sadducees is a new group for us, and they're an entirely different bunch. The Sadducees were the elite high priestly party. They were super committed to the temple. Uh, Their name most likely comes from uh, a man named Zadok, who was the man David made high priest when his son Solomon took the throne. So Zadok, Sadducee, uh, that's where it possibly came from. Um, The Sadducees were aristocratic power people, and they cared much more for politics and not so much about the law. In fact, they outright rejected the oral tradition that the Pharisees valued so highly. They said, we only accept written tradition, so we don't accept what the Pharisees teach. Now, none of the actual writing of the Sadducees has survived to this day, so we're just getting this from what their opponents say about them. But the point is that if the Pharisees of Jesus' day could be described as legalists, then the Sadducees could be described as the liberals. Okay, so these are these two categories of people. And what's remarkable in verse 1 is that these two groups come together. These two groups represent the entirety of official Jewish religion, and they are united, and they're united against Jesus. I mean, these were two groups of people that were anything but friendly. I mean, they were cats and dogs with one another. And so it's amazing that they chose to set aside their differences to fight what they said was a common enemy in Jesus. It it really shows us how much they were opposed to Jesus. If these guys are willing to be friends, it shows you how much they stand against Jesus. They realize that Jesus was a threat to their way of life. And so in essence, they say, we're going to set aside our hostility for a moment. We'll pick it up again, but first let's deal with this Jesus character because we've got to get rid of him. He's a threat to all of us. And really what the Sadducees are doing in this verse are going through extraordinary efforts to deal with Jesus. Not only did they join up with their own arch enemies, but they're also well outside their preferred territory. This is the only place in the whole New Testament that they are mentioned outside of Judea. All right. So they've gone through a lot of effort to come and test Jesus. Well, what is that? Well, that word test clearly indicates that they had a bad motive. All right. That that word test has the idea of I want to give you a test that you're going to fail. All right. I don't know how many of you, uh, maybe in high school or, or possibly in college, but you had a, a math, uh, you had a math teacher and you were convinced that their tests were designed to make you fail, all right? Um, I thought that about all my math teachers. Uh, but maybe math was your subject, but, and for you, it was your English teacher. And it didn't matter, I mean, you wrote your paper the best you could, and they managed to find, I mean, grammar mistakes that you didn't know existed. Uh, they found spelling, you, you just thought, they're testing me, and what they want me to do is fail. I mean, that's, that's kind of the idea here. We're testing 
with the actual idea to fail. Now, I'm not insinuating that teachers actually want their students to fail, uh, but that's what the Pharisees and Sadducees wanted. They wanted Jesus to fail. What they asked for is a sign from heaven. They wanted some kind of divine indication that Jesus was from God. They wanted it to be indisputable and beyond all doubt. In fact, they might have even been saying, do a sign up in the sky. Now, apparently, all the recent miracles of healing and of feeding didn't quite fit the bill. Uh, okay, yeah, Jesus, okay, enough of that whole seven loaves and feeding 4,000 pe- 4, men with that. I mean, we want you to actually do something impressive, all right? So we want some wow factor in, in what you do. We want some kind of showmanship. We want you to prove beyond a doubt that God really is with you, all right? These are people that are blinded by unbelief. What has Jesus been doing? I mean, for, for 16 chapters, we've been reading about the amazing power of Jesus Christ. And these guys say, we want you to do something because we're not really sure you're the Messiah. Show us a sign. So notice how Jesus responds. I mean, this is pointed confrontation to them. Verse number two, Jesus answers them. When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. In the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Right? You, you have all heard the expression, red sky at night, sailor's delight. Red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. You've all heard that one? Well, apparently, uh, this is one of the oldest known Near Eastern sayings. Only what they said was, red sky at night, shepherds delight. All right, so we've taken it from them and we took sailors. But this was actually something that's been around for thousands of years. Red sky at night, sailors, shepherds, it's their delight. Sky in the morning, red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. Uh, Jesus' point is really easy to see. You can look at the same weather phenomena at different times of the day, and you can come to the right conclusion, all right? Remarkably, however, the religious leaders who were so good at weather forecasting were completely unable to interpret the spiritual signs that Jesus was leaving everywhere. Jesus says they cannot interpret the signs of the times. They are completely unable. They have no spiritual discernment to interpret the signs that said Jesus is the Messiah. And those signs that Jesus is talking about were the miracles and the teaching and the divine character that was on display constantly in Jesus' ministry. Do do you hear the sting? Do you hear how pointed this confrontation is in what Jesus says? You can just see Jesus. I mean, he's looking at these religious leaders and he's going, well, great job on the weather guys but you totally miss anything spiritual. So super job figuring out the weather, but you miss it. And Jesus goes on from that, if that wasn't stinging enough, he goes on from telling them they are incompetent to telling them that they are wicked. All right, look what he says down in verse number four. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. You guys who want to do a sign, I'll tell you about you. You are evil, you're morally corrupt, and you're adulterous. You break the covenant that God made with his people. I mean, this is powerful confrontation from Jesus. The Pharisees missed the Messiah. They failed to read the signs that were as plain as day. MacArthur says this, It was the beginning of the Messianic age that Jews had long hoped for, but those Jewish leaders did not recognize it. They were better weathermen than biblical scholars. Another commentator named Carson adds, the proof that they cannot discern the signs is that they ask for a sign. All right, do you, do you get the point? Show us a sign. What do you think's been happening all this time? What do you think about this feeding the 4,000? And so Jesus says, I, 
I am, I am not going to battle this. I'm not going to do some dog and pony show and put on a miracle display for you. Uh, you're not getting any sign except the sign of Jonah. You see, unbelief refuses to see Jesus for who he really is, who he had clearly shown himself to be. Jesus had already said to, to these very Pharisees, uh, you, are, you are blind guides. Uh, you are people that the Father is going to uproot. You go with superficial solutions. All you want to do is clean up the outside. And Jesus says, you miss it. You have failed to read the signs that were as plain as day. And so something is going to happen. Jesus says, you're not going to get any sign except the sign of Jonah. That's in other places explained, like in chapter 12. That's the sign of the resurrection. Jesus says, there is going to be something powerful that's going to happen. And it's going to be visible for everybody. And that's going to be the resurrection. But are their evil, unbelieving hearts, are they even going to accept that sign? No, they're not going to. But Jesus says, I'm not going to put on a show for you. I'm not going to do it. In fact, you get down to the end of verse number four, and look what happens. He left them and departed. He left them and departed. The amazing, sad truth about this leaving is that this is really Jesus' last meeting in Galilee with these opponents. Jesus is about to depart and go to the Gentile region of Caesarea Philippi. Um, That's what's coming in Matthew chapter number 16. He is going to have to come through this region on his way down to Jerusalem and on his way down to the cross. But we don't find out that he doesn't do any more miracles in this region and he doesn't do any more teaching. This is a leaving of abandonment. The religious leaders miss the Messiah and now he's going to leave them. Well, we've seen... We've seen Jesus powerfully care for the crowds and we've seen him pointedly confront the religious leaders. The last scene for us to see today is to see Jesus pastorally cautioning the disciples. Let's look at verse number five. In verse number five, we discover that the disciples forgot to bring any bread. So it says in verse number five, Jesus, in verse four, he has departed. He's leaving them. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. All right. So they, they've been on their uh, sailing vessel and uh, they get to the other side And they don't have any bread. And look look what Jesus says to them in verse 6. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, watch is is a word that's used actually for looking with your eyes, uh, for paying attention. It's used here with the idea of looking out. So Jesus is really doubling his caution when he says, look out and beware. Right? See how he uses the same kind of word? Look out, beware. What do you need to be aware of? You need to be aware of the leaven of the religious leaders. Uh, now, leaven, you probably know, um, was a piece of the previous week's dough that was used to make this week's dough rise. And it's really a great metaphor for something that works unseen but has very definite results. Uh, it's most often used negatively in the Bible, but not always. All right? Leaven itself is not inherently sinful. All right? it's, it's a normal part of everyday life in Jewish culture. All right? Leaven is not sin, um, but it's a metaphor. It's a helpful way of, of explaining the point. And it's a metaphor for Jesus to say there's something unseen that's at work and you need to pay attention. You need to beware because something's happening behind the scenes. There's leaven going on and it's leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so the disciples immediately start discussing this pastoral caution from Jesus. And here's their brilliant interpretation that they come up with. Look at verse number seven. They begin discussing among themselves, saying or concluding, well, it's because we brought no bread. Right? Jesus is telling us to beware the leaven because we forgot to bring any bread with us today. Now, this is the disciples 
doing what they've been doing for several chapters now. Uh, this is them fumbling and bumbling and missing the point. This is yet this is yet more misunderstanding from the disciples. And Jesus is going to severely chide them. Look, look what he says. Verse number eight. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Right? What does Jesus target? He targets not, not, their, not their lack of understanding, but their lack of faith. He says, you don't have faith. People who wholly trust in God don't come to the conclusion that the disciples came up with. All right? If you actually trusted God, you wouldn't have gone, well, he must be 11 of Pharisees. He's probably talking about bread because now we don't have any and we're going to go hungry. That is not a conclusion from someone that has faith. Really, the disciples are dangerously close to the unbelief that the Pharisees completely uh, possessed. They missed who Jesus was. And now the disciples are acting like they don't have the great miracle worker in the boat with them. I mean, they're acting like, well, he's probably talking about food again because we don't have any. In verse number nine, Jesus asked some rhetorical questions. Look at it in verse number nine. Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves or the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Jesus asked, haven't you figured this thing out yet? Haven't you been with me long enough to think this through correctly? He starts with, he starts with do you not yet perceive? Do you not grasp yet? Do, do, is your understanding not working? Well, if your understanding is not working, Jesus says, well, then let me appeal to your memory. All right. So your mind's not working to understand. So let's try to use your minds to remember. All right. Let's put two and two together here. Uh, you, you saw me. You remember that there were five loaves and I fed 5,000 with them. And then there were seven loaves and I fed 4,000 with them. Now, you, you remember that that happened, right? I mean, you see the disciples sitting here going like, like their brows are furrowed and they're like, yeah, yep. Yeah, I remember that. Okay. Uh, what Jesus is saying is bread is not the problem. All right. Jesus can meet any physical need. His point is not beware the leaven of the Pharisees because of something about physical bread. Supplying it is no problem. And basically he says, how are you guys missing this? All right. This is Jesus pastorally chiding his disciples. He says, verse number 11, how is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? How did you do this? How did you come up with this wrong conclusion? So, he used his rhetorical questions apparently effectively because he's going to repeat his warning. He, he doesn't re-explain. He just says, haven't you figured this out yet? And then he just repeats what he already said. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. What happens in verse number 12? Then they understood. Oh, the light bulb went on. Ding. Oh, he's not talking about bread. They understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So the disciples, it, it clicks. They finally get the point. Jesus' concern was with the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, it's interesting that that word teaching is singular because the two groups taught very different things. In what sense could we say the Pharisees and Sadducees taught the same thing? Well, what their teaching had in common was that Jesus was not the Messiah. They ignored the work that he had already done. They both insisted they needed to see a sign. Their teaching discredited Jesus. And said he hadn't provided enough proof. You haven't done enough yet for us to believe that you're the Messiah. That was their teaching. 
the essence of their dangerous teaching was unbelief toward this divine revelation that refused to accept Jesus as the Messiah. And Jesus cautions his disciples, you need to be on guard for such antichrist kind of teaching. He doesn't tell his disciples to, to dialogue with the religious leaders. He doesn't tell them to get their perspective and hear them out. He says, you need to be on guard for these people. You need to, you need to watch out for this kind of teaching. Teaching about Jesus is not all the same, nor is it innocuous. A stubborn, blind refusal to believe the signs about Jesus the Messiah is actually dangerous. And believers must be on guard against the teaching that comes from this kind of unbelief. Now, the disciples finally get it, and and you kind of have to feel for the disciples uh, if you have any awareness of your own sin, right? I mean, you have to be you have to be thinking, the disciples are just right where I would be if, if I were in their sandals, right? Um, I mean, they, they're bumbling, they're needy, they're misunderstanding, but finally they do get the point. In fact, in the verses that we're going to study next week, uh, actually next week's Easter, the following week, uh, Peter is going to grasp that Jesus really is the Messiah, all right? You're probably very familiar with what we've what is coming in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus, uh, Peter is going to get the point about Jesus and he's going to do it not on the basis of signs and wonders, but of the revelation of God the Father. All right, the disciples are going to get it. And there is encouragement in Jesus' pastoral interaction with them. I, I really like this quote um, from, one, from one teacher I had in seminary. You can count on it if you are a true disciple that Jesus will bear with your failures, correct you where you are wrong, and go on to teach you what you need to know, all right? Jesus is chiding them. He says they have little faith, but he's not just leaving them saying, you guys are just Pharisees and Sadducees. I'm done with you. How how can you be such numbskulls for all this time? I've had it. No, he's patient. He's pastoral. He's, He's saying, man, I want you to, you need to see this truth. And so he brings them the best way to see it. And, and they ultimately do believe in Jesus, the Messiah. But what about us today? All right, so what? So what that these things happened in history? What, what's the significance for us today? All right, nice accounts, um, but what, what's the point for us? Well, I think the first thing is, do you believe today that Jesus is the Messiah? Do, do you? Are you convinced that Jesus is who he said he was? Are you confident that Jesus alone is God's son? He is the only one sent from God to take away your sins. Do you look at his character in power in Matthew and still say, we just need a further experience to be really convinced that this Christianity thing is true. Uh, maybe if we had some kind of modern experience of the power of God, then we could really appreciate that Jesus was the Messiah. Maybe if we had some kind of second blessing from him. Uh, Matthew's gospel demands belief in Jesus from every one of us this morning. Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? He's either a complete fabrication and a fraud or else he alone can save you from your sin. If, if your trust is not in Jesus alone to rescue you from God's punishment on your sin, then today you can beg God to give you eyes to see Jesus for who he really is. I would hope that the majority of those of you who are here are currently trusting Jesus to be your savior. You have embraced him as the Messiah. But what you can do in this story is see the power and character of Jesus and marvel again at who your Christ is. We have a compassionate and a caring Christ. And he has all of the power we could possibly need to meet our every need. I mean, most notably, our trust in Jesus for salvation is not misplaced. 
I mean, be encouraged this morning, fellow believers. Your confidence in Jesus Christ to save you from your sin is not on the wrong person. You have, you have trusted the only one who can eternally save your soul. This Jesus is the true Messiah. And so he's our rightful king. He is worthy of our devotion and our submission and our constant obedience because he is who he said he is. So think of Jesus, believer, as these verses show him to be. He's not some effeminate, hand-wringing pushover, but he is the compassionate, powerful, confrontational, pastoral king. This is a Christ that you can depend on for your salvation. And this is a Christ that you can depend on for everything you need for life and for godliness. Believe in Jesus the Messiah. Okay? A second category that I would suggest for your application comes from Jesus' warning to his disciples to beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Right? Now, when the disciples applied what Jesus said, they actually applied it to Pharisees and Sadducees. That was the primary application. Look out for the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. We don't have Pharisees and Sadducees uh, anymore. Those groups don't exist in our day. Does that mean that there's no more significance in Jesus saying, look out for their teaching? Well, the answer is no, because the need to be on guard against teaching that comes from unbelief is, is all the more necessary in our day today. All right? Today, you and I need to beware any teaching that refuses to see Jesus for who he really is. We need to be on guard. We need to be alert. Teaching that discredits or defames or distorts Christ, it's dangerous. You need to be aware of it. So in our day, we may not have Pharisees and Sadducees, but we still have countless religious groups who reject Jesus as the Messiah. All right? Jewish religion today still rejects Jesus as Messiah. Jehovah's false witnesses reject Jesus as Messiah. Mormons reject Jesus for who he says he really is. Even the remnant, the cult that has been so influential in our own valley here, they reject Jesus as God's son. We need to be on guard. These aren't groups that are somewhere else, somewhere far away. They're right here. They're in our neighborhoods. They live, they live in the houses next to you. Um, they're pulling people away to to their heretical views of Christ from churches. We live in a day when the evangelical world is no longer constantly sounding alarm about these kind of groups. In fact, there have been movements today to embrace Mormons into evangelicalism, just like there was in the last century to accept Roman Catholics. Now, you might think that we can use Mormons as an extreme example, right? I mean, you would say, yeah, okay, you're willing to call a lot of people brothers and put your arm around a lot of people, but surely you would never fellowship with a Mormon and call them a brother, right? I mean, that's like on the edge of extreme. Uh, if that's your thinking, um, unfortunately, that's not the thinking of the majority of evangelicalism today. I mean, that idea, oh, accepting Mormons, that's like out there. That's crazy talk. That's the same perspective that an earlier generation had about Roman Catholics. And look where we are now with cooperation between Protestants and Catholics. Because the same refusal to call unbelieving teachers evil and to beware their dangerous teaching will continue to erode distinctions between true believers and false believers, including cult groups. You and I have to live in this messy ecumenical world. We have to talk to friends who aren't nearly so concerned about this kind of teaching. And so you and I desperately need to hear, hear Jesus' pastoral caution. You need to beware of this teaching. It's not just out there somewhere. It's right here. And this unbelieving teaching about Jesus is dangerous. But it's also very subtle. 
the false teaching about Jesus is not just in the form of Mormons and Jehovah's false witnesses. Because perhaps you're thinking this morning, I mean, I've never been influenced by any teaching like that. Um, I would not be influenced by any teaching that makes less, less of Christ. Uh, so uh, this caution isn't that really necessary. I mean, do we really need Jesus to caution us? Of course we, of course we would never listen to someone that taught less of Jesus. Well, first of all, that'd be a mistake because Jesus clearly thought his disciples needed to be warned. I mean, if you're sitting here thinking, I've been well taught about Jesus, why would I, why would I ever listen to false teaching about Jesus? Who, who do you think was better taught, the disciples as they sat underneath Christ or you? All right, the disciples needed this warning and we need it too. And Jesus used the idea of leaven to describe this kind of teaching because it's so subtle. It changes things behind the scenes. Let me just give you one example to think through. Um, there, is, there is a modern move towards something that's really a therapeutic gospel. And it's everywhere today, this idea of a therapeutic gospel, changing how we think about Jesus and how we think about the gospel. And this idea of the therapeutic gospel is that the gospel is all about solving our problems. And so what Jesus wants to do, this kind of teaching says, Jesus just wants to give you good health. And he just wants to give you good relationships. Uh, Jesus wants to counsel you out of your low self-esteem, and he wants to rescue you from being a victim, all right? Uh, That's paraphrased from a sermon uh, that I listened to. Did you hear the therapy in that? Jesus wants to just get you out of your low self-esteem. The problem is that's not the real Jesus, but pastors are being influenced by teaching like that, and, and so is everyone else, and pretty soon you get whole sermon series that say things like 10 steps to a better marriage, all right? Is there anything wrong with a topical series on a better marriage? Absolutely not. Well, then why you say that's a problem? Well, it can be the fruit of turning Jesus into a psychologist and the gospel into therapy. So what we really need from Jesus is just fix our marriage problems. Uh, five ways to better friendship. I mean, that's a great self-help seminar, but it doesn't belong beside authoritative teaching about Christ. Let the world have their self-help. We have Jesus, all right? The, the, the church does not exist to present a Jesus who is, who is all about meeting whatever need you think you have. That's not the Jesus of the Bible, all right? And that's why it's so disturbing to see trends toward presenting a gospel that just fixes our problem, that fixes our low self-esteem. And that kind of thinking has swept through American Christianity. People haven't been paying attention to the point where every single one of us are touched this morning. I mean, how many of us haven't had a friend who thought that your best life now was life-changing? I mean, how many of us haven't heard someone say, I mean, your best life now, I mean, that's, one of, that's like life-changer. That's like, you've got to read this. I mean, this is influencing people everywhere, and yet it's presenting a gospel devoid of, of really a Jesus who has to save you from something. Uh, Jesus now has to save you from your bad marriage, not from your sin. He has to save you from your bad habits. Uh, this is not the Jesus that we see in scripture. And so there is a leaven that comes in to teaching about Jesus. More personally, how many of us squirm at a constant discussion about sin because we want to feel good about ourselves? All right? That's, that's self-help kind of thinking that's eroded how we look at ourselves. I just want to feel nice about me. Why do we always have to be talking about sin? I get down when I hear about sin. All right? That's, that's the therapeutic gospel influencing your thinking. Okay, the gospel needs to change us. We need to be confronted with the word. We need a Jesus who says, this is what is true. And so when you hear someone say, the gospel is 
fill in the blank, you need to pay very close attention to what comes next. All right, if somebody says the gospel is love, you need to be ready to have some red flags. If you hear the gospel is victory over bad health, you need to go, that's just not right. The gospel is freedom from low self-esteem. That is leaven kind of teaching. All right, so when someone says, well, remember Jesus just taught us, you need to check to see if he really did. When you say, well, Jesus is just this kind of person, go back to the Jesus of Matthew and say, is this who he really is? We need to beware. We need to pay attention. Because Jesus says teaching that comes from this kind of unbelief is dangerous and subtle. Okay? You can beware of teaching that speaks less of Christ by immersing yourself in what is true. So you fill your mind with the true gospel and a right perspective of Christ so that when you hear any other kind of teaching, immediately it's suspect. Immediately red flags go up in your mind. So really what I'm encouraging you to apply is to come back to meditating on the gospel and learning the character of Christ. That's a good reason for you to come back to our study in Matthew and say, who is this Christ? Because when we know who he really is, the false teaching about him becomes oh so easy to see. Don't miss the Messiah, Matthew says, and don't be misled by false teaching about him. We need to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And we need to beware any teaching that says otherwise. Be on guard.